This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome back to New Books and Historical Materialism, a series from the New Books Network. I am your host, Stephen Dozman. People with disabilities have always struggled to make ends meet. Finding a job you can actually do, a housing situation you can afford that meets your needs, and simply going about the various daily tasks most of us take for granted all compound to make life under capitalism especially challenging. This makes the many disabled people who not only rise to meet their life circumstances, but go beyond them, particularly inspiring. One such figure in this category would be E.T. Kingsley, a socialist activist at the turn of the 20th century. After an injury working on railway lines in Montana left him a double amputee, Kingsley traveled west, first to California and then eventually to British Columbia, where he would work as a political speaker, candidate for office, editor, and writer in the radical left. His life is the focus of the book under discussion today, Able to Lead, Disablement, Radicalism, and the Political Life of E.T. Kingsley, co-authored by Ravi Malhotra and Benjamin Isett. Pulling their combined academic backgrounds and intellectual resources, the authors are able to tease out a number of quiet yet profound elements of Kingsley's life and times, from the legal status of injuries and workers' compensation to discussions around freedom of speech and the changing nature of the security state. In all this contextual discussion, the authors still never allow Kingsley to disappear as a dynamic and passionate activist, one who managed to stand as a unique example of what it means to tirelessly fight for a better world. Drawing from a number of fields, the book will be of interest to a number of people, from labor historians and disability activists to legal scholars and political theorists, showing us that even as we are flung into circumstances not of our choosing, we can still rise above our circumstances and change the world. Ravi Malhotra is a professor in the Faculty of Law at the University of Ottawa. Benjamin Isett is a historian and legal scholar based in Victoria, British Columbia. Ravi Malhotra, welcome to the New Books Network. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah, so I always like to kick episodes off uh, by having guests introduce themselves. So could you maybe tell listeners a bit about uh, who you are and what your work and research uh, tends to focus on and maybe a little bit about 
uh, Ben as well, since he couldn't be with us. And I'd also be curious to know how you two came to uh, get to know each other and work together on this project a bit. Um, How did you two find each other and decide this would be a great collaborative effort? Okay, so I'm Ravi Mohatra. I teach at the University of Ottawa Faculty of Law in the common law section uh, in Canada. And uh, I'm a person with a disability. I've been disabled my entire life. And one day I was reading this book called Reasoning Otherwise by Ian Mackay. It's a book about Canadian left history. And I came across the reference to the subject of the biography I did with Ben, uh, you know, uh, E.T. Kingsley. And when I saw this, I said, I thought, my goodness, here's a double amputee, it's a political radical. I'm interested in history, and I'm interested in disability. I'm also a legal scholar, and I just guessed that there'd be some law in it. It was just a hunch, and it was only much later that I found my hunch was valid. Uh, And so, you know, I'm someone who's always worked on disability rights law. I'm not a formal historian. And so I sought out Ben, who I did not know prior to this. So Benjamin Isaac is based in British Columbia, where our research subject or subject of our biography, Kingsley, spent very many years. And so it was very useful to have Ben, who lives in the capital of British Columbia, Victoria. And Ben is somebody who uh, has two PhDs. He's an independent scholar. He has a PhD in both law and a PhD in history. And he's also an elected city councillor on the Victoria City Council. So he's someone who, uh, you know, brings up the historical training to the project. And I have the legal knowledge. And we set out to do this biography. And it was only later in the project that it all was validated when we discovered that Kingsley had in fact sued his employer. Of course, I'm somebody that thinks law is everywhere, but in this case, this is something that really was validated. And so the book is unusual in that it brings together uh, you know, three separate fields at a minimum, which is labor history, uh, disability history, and legal history all in sort of one go. And it's not even just one type of law. There's the tort litigation, but there's also the fact that immigration law plays a role in the book. Kingsley crossed the border. And, uh, you know, as I'll tell your listeners, he simply crossed. He just showed up in Canada one day. I mean, uh, you can't really do that in 2022, but you could in uh, 1902. And he was a white man. He was able to do that. He ran for office in uh, on both sides of the border. And so uh, you had the immigration law, you had the tort law aspects in terms of his litigation for compensation. And because he was such a radical, eventually the security state started monitoring him. So you had implications for national security law. So it brings together all these different fragments. But in a nutshell, that's sort of uh, how Ben and I uh, were able to collaborate. And in fact, uh, we although we did meet, obviously, physically, eventually, uh, Canada, like the United States, is a big country. We live on opposite ends of the continent. And so we spent a decade writing this book while living thousands of miles apart. 
Yeah, I loved how the book really kind of drew on both your uh, backgrounds and kind of tied together a number of different academic threads. But to kick things off with discussing this book, uh, the life of Kingsley is interesting to you for a lot of reasons, a central one obviously being his being disabled. Taking this seriously means employing a particular method, critical disability theory, to unpack and understand his life and times. So can you give us a kind of an introductory explanation of what critical disability theory is and what it enables you to see that a traditional biographer might have missed? Yeah, critical disability theory is simply the idea that we assess the structural barriers that implicate the lives of people with disabilities. Uh, You know, disability is everywhere and barriers are everywhere. So instead of taking the world as given, we challenge it. What's interesting, though, in the case of disability history is, of course, we're going back in time when people with disabilities did not necessarily have this kind of consciousness. So when people ask me, I'm often accustomed to comparing Kingsley to, say, the American president, Franklin Roosevelt. And I say that not because Kingsley was ever elected to office. He wasn't, even though he ran numerous times for both the U.S. House of Representatives and the Canadian House of Commons. But I say that because in the sense that Kingsley was someone who uh, faced barriers and yet wasn't someone that we know of, as far as we know, consciously talked about his disability. He was a socialist, he was a radical, and he did all this work. But even though disability clearly affected his life, 1890, he was in this accident, he became an amputee, lost both his legs. He wasn't someone who directly advocated for this. And so critical disability theory allows you to tease out the barriers, the ways someone uh, dealt with the fact that they're living in an ableist world. And if you survey the evidence and you go deep enough, you'll start to see it. So, you know, we we were lucky enough to win uh, a grant. So we, we had an army of RAs, research assistants. We started to notice patterns, like he often would live very, very close to his workplace. Well, the reason for this is obvious. Once you get to know his life, even though he didn't directly talk about it, he's somebody that had a mobility impairment. He ambulated with artificial limbs, and it seems he used a cane. That kind of thing would have been essential for him to to prosper in an era, you know, we're talking about the late 19th, early 20th century, long before technology, and, and really before the era of automobiles, you know, except for the very, very rich, uh, and that's only towards the end of his life, you know, and so This is largely someone that grew up in a different era, but I think critical disability theory allows you to tease these things out, allows you to to look at how it is uh, society uh, disables people, not simply in terms of physical barriers, but in terms of how the economic setup uh, of society works. And and we see that later in many of... uh, the positions that Kingsley took. What I mean by that is simply people with disabilities in his time and today are people who are largely outside the paid labor market, right? So, I mean, and I think, in my opinion anyway, it's 
obvious that his economic location shaped his socialist politics. He's somebody that never had a quote-unquote proper job after his disablement in his early 30s, but he went on to lead a remarkable life. And this is why we wrote the book, to tell the story of his political campaigning. But I think that the economic marginalization fed into his politics and it, it fed in to particular positions he took, which I'm happy to elaborate on. But in a nutshell, I, th- I think that's sort of an overview of uh, you know how one might want to think about critical disability theory. And of course, there's different variants, different modulations. You know, people uh, are influenced in some cases by a more postmodern version. In our case, ours is much more uh, connected with materialism uh, than some other people might be. But uh, but we still we take a nod to authors like Mark Sherry and others that you know that that have a phenomenological uh, outlook. We we try to infuse our analysis uh, of the facts with the theory. Yeah, we'll get to his politics uh, down the road a bit, but I want to start off um, jumping off of this method, uh, talking about Kingsley's injury, which happened in late 1890. Uh, He was working as a rail line worker in Montana at the time. So to tease things out, you spend a lot of time uh, looking uh, from different perspectives at this injury. Let's start with safety conditions of rail line workers, which you note were incredibly harsh and led to many workers uh, being hurt, often badly, often permanently. Many others were often killed uh, on the job. Can you tell us about the safety conditions Kingsley was working under? Oh, I'd be happy to. You know, at the time, there was popular discourse of how there was an accident crisis in uh, the late 1880s and early 1890s. And I think the president at the time, President Harrison, actually made an address uh, to Congress about, you know, the accidents because they they were so widespread. And in these days, in those days, the focus was very much on profitability. And so in the book, uh, I'm not going to go through this in painstakingly boring detail uh, for, for a general audience, but we talk a little bit about some of the legal doctrines. And in summary, those doctrines were designed to protect employers from liability. They made it extremely difficult for injured workers to successfully sue the company. And they had to go through a series of steps. You know, there's different Latin phrases. I'm not going to go through all of them here, but the, the gist of it, the summary, is that it made it really difficult for an injured worker to show... Uh, liability and conditions were extremely dangerous. And so we talk about this in depth in the book uh, in the United States and many countries in the world at the time. There, there was a carnage, you know, a large number of injuries. And it really drives it home to readers when you think about uh, Northern Pacific, which is only one, of course, one of the railway companies operating in the United States. And, and we have photographs of their hospitals. They had they had a network of railway hospitals along their line. What were they for? They were to treat injured workers and perhaps passengers, but I think primarily workers. The fact that Northern Pacific had not one but a series of railway hospitals along the line, uh, you know, and this is where E.T. Kingsley convalesced at one of them, where he read Marx's Capital uh, after his injury in Montana. That says a lot about the fact uh, of injury 
in the 1800s. You know, they, they were uh, widespread. And in fact, I think you, you can find many of those railway hospitals featured on uh, postcards that people collected at the time. And, and I think in uh, the United States, the, the memory of railway hospitals has sort of, uh, you know, largely been dissipated through the passage of time. But back in the late 19th century, uh, accidents were so common that you had a series of these hospitals. You had a large number of injuries, and it was accepted. And so one of the things we talk about in the book is how did the unions uh, deal with them? And oftentimes, uh, you know, the unions were not necessarily run by radicals. They wouldn't necessarily support their disabled brothers in in their fights. A lot of times there was this ideology of masculinity that if, if you were a good worker, you would not have uh, uh, been injured. And so there, there was sort of a sense of shame around it. But but the fact that they, they had to deal with it despite that ideology that uh, we talk about in this book, there were uh, some compensation schemes and the unions uh, funded some homes for the injured workers to live in. That speaks volumes to the uh, level of injury that existed. Yeah, another thing worth highlighting that you were just alluding to, uh, the consequences of injury. Uh, Kingsley did attempt to receive compensation for his injury, but there weren't the same safety nets for workers back then in terms of compensation or financial security that we might expect today, although there were struggles to make things better along this front around Kingsley's time. What sort of compensation could a disabled worker expect, or what sort of life post-injury could they expect? Well, I think the, the, the sad reality is that compensation is uh, the exception, if, if you mean in terms of winning in a tort litigation, because the system was very much in favor of the railway. So, of course, they're the ones with the uh, excellent legal counsel. I think it would be very challenging. The socioeconomic supports from the state would be very minimal. And so we never found the ultimate court record. We know Kingsley sued. He sued for something like $80,000. And we we did use uh, statistical calculations to, to, to update what adjusting for inflation. So that, that would be something like several, a few million, I think, in uh, 2022 dollars. But it seems, given that uh, the way he lived his life afterwards, which seemed uh, from his time as a delayist radical in California to his life as a radical in the Socialist Party of Canada, he never had any money. And you'll see in the correspondence we did find, he struggled all the way through. So I think Ben and I were able to surmise from the historical evidence that he wasn't successful in his litigation. And that's no surprise. Uh, If anything, Kingsley was probably more astute because uh, he had a a sister who had married a Wisconsin, uh, you know, member of the uh, legislature who went on to be uh, a state senator. And uh, he, in that sense, I think you could argue that he had more privilege, you know, than some other people. But even in his case, it just didn't work out. So we, we were able to find out that he had worked at a legal clinic, uh, a law firm and uh, before his injury. But, you know, it just didn't uh, work out for him. 
Yeah, finally on the injury, uh, you alluded to this again earlier, the politics of gender and their relation to workplace injuries. So in a time where men were expected to be men and take care of themselves and their families in a particular sort of way, an injury was a dangerous emasculating affront to that sort of identity, something that also played a role in many of these workplaces. So how do questions of gender identity help us understand the politics and implications of Kingsley's injury? Oh, I think that's a great question. You know, I think that it's very clear that Kingsley is someone through his career that had a very masculinist conception, you know, and there uh, was a lot of evidence that the unions at the time, you know, these are uh, exclusively male workers, they saw it, I think, as feminizing and, and demeaning when a worker became injured. And so I think the idea that masculinity was associated with power very much, uh, you know, was something that when an injury took place, it was seen as feminizing. It was a sign of weakness. And so it's interesting that Kingsley is someone, even for the time he lived in, we're not being anachronistic was not progressive on issues around women's suffrage. And so if you go trace it, when, when he becomes a political leader, you'll see he took positions that were very much uh, opposed to women's suffrage. He was very much old school, the sort of one-plank class politics, you know. Uh, and so there is, uh, I think, uh, a connection there, but, but it's very clear that the masculinist uh, politics of the day, you know, it led to this sort of uh, stented growth, you could say. They, you didn't have the f- a full rounded understanding of, of gender politics that we would have today. And uh, I think it also speaks to the isolation in Kingsley's life. He's someone, and we don't have the details, but his marriage breaks up. He is a father. We have tantalizing evidence that he may have once visited his children very much later in life, that they may have come and uh, his children seen him in British Columbia. But overwhelmingly, the evidence is that he is uh, separated from his wife shortly after his injury. She doesn't follow him to California. He seems isolated. And he seems, as far as we can tell, to have no further relationships, uh, at least in terms of marriages, that we can see. And so I think it speaks very much to his isolation as well. And, uh, you know, today's terms, we might talk about toxic masculinity. uh, But in those days, you know, there just wasn't the same understanding. And I think that sort of feeds in to the politics, which was very much uh, focused on class. Yeah, after uh, recovering, Kingsley would make his way west, politically radicalized and ready to be involved in political struggle. So early in his political career, he found himself involved in California's Bay Area as a member of the Socialist Labor Party under the influence of figures like Daniel DeLeon, who made... Uh, and they would all make a deep impression on Kingsley's own political views. So could you tell us about his early experience here and the political orientation Kingsley would develop in these early days of his activism? Sure. So Kingsley 
became known as a soapbox speaker. You know, we don't have the exact details, but as I indicated, his marriage falls apart. He became uh, radical. We don't have evidence of exactly how it happened. It seems that he, at some point, ended up in San Francisco. And this is pre-earthquake San Francisco. This is a completely different world. Uh, it takes time to get uh, your mind wrapped around it. For one thing, at the time, it seemed as if there was a very significant branch, multiple branches, and there evidence of something like six branches of the Socialist Labor Party, and some of them were functioning as linguistic branches, which was common in the era, but I think to a modern listener would come to a surprise, maybe a surprise to listeners. So you had branches that functioned in German, branches that functioned in French, branches that functioned in Yiddish. And that, and that speaks to the sort of uh, multiracial nature of the working class. But uh, in the 1890s, this is long forgotten, I think, even by modern historians of socialism. But in the 1890s, the Socialist Labor Party was the dominant tendency on the American left. I mean, this is before the days of Eugene Debs. That doesn't occur. The split and the formation of the U.S. Socialist Party doesn't occur till the 20th century. We're still talking about the 1890s, you know. And so Debs was around, but he hadn't formed the uh, Socialist Party yet. And so DeLion's or DeLeon's party was the dominant party. And it was quite a dogmatic form of Marxism. It was very much DeLeon's way or the highway. It was very much about him, his vision, very much focused on class and quite skeptical of unions. Now, that evolves over time. But, uh, you know, uh, in the 1890s, when Kingsley was active, and he was state organizer in California, he did a lot of speeches, uh, and he was a soapbox speaker, as I said. And one of the most fascinating things is that there, uh, you know, was a movement around uh, free speech in the streets in uh, in uh, California in the 1890s. And I'm hardly going to say that we're the ones that found this. You never say that kind of thing because there's always someone that came before you. But, you know, there are very, very little literature on this episode when people, the jargon for historians is the free speech fights. That's usually correlated with the anarchist IWW. And they're usually later in time, if you want to think back, which all sounds ancient today, but that's actually the early 20th century. People think about free speech fights in places like Spokane, Washington. They think about 1909 battles. They think about free speech fights in 1912. But this is the 1890s. And and so Kingsley was involved and was arrested at some of the very earliest bans on free speech where uh, they would have silent marches to protest uh, the political uh, suppression of working class demands. And as a consequence of his notoriety, uh, there's no evidence he actually went to jail. I think that was worked out. But he, he was, uh, you know, he was quite young still at this point, uh, you know, and uh, he'd been newly injured in his 30s in 1890. He was still young and he had uh, already reached the level where people were interested in him running for the House of Representatives. And I can't prove that Kingsley is the only person to run for both the U.S. House of Representatives and the Canadian House of Commons. But I have to tell you, I think it's a very, very unusual 
feat for anybody, whether you're disabled or not. He ran for the House of Representatives twice uh, in California. Of course, he never wins. He never wins office, and he wins a desultory number of votes. You know, this is uh, Marxian socialism in uh, in California. But just the fact that he ran, you know, uh, it's clear that in a small way, he's a local public figure. His name's in the paper. He's a local candidate. And so he develops this uh, radical politics uh, around class, you know, and uh, it's, 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 a, it's an uncompromising form of socialism. Yeah. Yeah. And he was clearly unafraid to put himself out there um, in the struggle. So after a time, he eventually split with the Bay Area socialists and he traveled north and ended up in a small town called Nanaimo in British Columbia, which for those who don't know is on Vancouver Island. Um, And at the time that he got there, it was a small mining town ripe for the sort of militant politics he was trying to advocate Kate for. So could you tell us a little bit about what he found in Nanaimo and uh, British Columbia more broadly and what his role became uh, in this place? Sure. So Kingsley was invited by British Columbia socialists uh, because of his fame or notoriety as a soapbox speaker. His, uh, he, he had eventually split with De Leon. And so I, I should clarify that. He had a brief sojourn uh, where he ran his own small organization in Seattle in, at the very, very end of the 19th century. But eventually, in the early days of the 20th century, he is invited to come up to join the socialists in Nanaimo. And he, uh, you know, comes up, and I think originally it was meant to be only a temporary stay. But at that point, he never looks back. And so he's only there for a couple of years. His original job, so to speak, is as a fishmonger. He sells fish in uh, uh, Nanaimo. And uh, certainly his political opponents, if you read the newspapers at the time, and once he goes to Canada and British Columbia, there's much more newspaper reports about his activity, about his work. You'll see they make fun of the fact that he's selling fish. But, you know, this is what he was doing. And within a couple of years, he's living in Vancouver, which, of course, you probably know now is a is one of the largest cities in Canada. But in 1902, uh, or say 1904, it's a couple of years later, when he, in these early years, it's an extremely small place. And so we, we have evidence of uh, his... Uh, uh, phone number, for example, and I think we track it down in the early days and it's three digits, you know, and this is, uh, this is not a metropolis, you know, it's, it's much smaller than the smallest of towns. Yeah, um, to start teasing out some of his actual political views uh, in a bit more detail, at several points in the book, you um, try and wrestle with his politics and find them to be in a solid direction, but with a number of critical blind spots. His main orientation was to 
develop, as you've said, a class-first Marxism. And this often had him arguing for class struggle and revolution without much consideration for the plight of women, people of color, or immigrants, or indigenous Native Americans, all of whom were suffering under capitalism, but in their own unique ways. Strangely, he also had very little to say about workplace safety and disabled persons. Can you speak to these blind spots a bit and how they functioned in Kingsley's political orientation? Well, I think he is a product of his times, you know, and, and I think that these were very common views at the time. It is interesting when when you speak of disability, you know, uh, why it is. This is something that Ben and I, you know, spent a lot of time trying to figure out. He's somebody that obviously was disabled. One, one of the major uh, projects was to verify that our secondary sources is right, that, that he did have a disability, and we were delighted uh, when we were able to find evidence of the injury. And so, you know, I, I made a trip to go to Spring Gulch, Montana, where he was injured. So there's no question that he was definitely injured. I think, though, that's what's interesting is uh, I don't want to import improperly queer notions of passing in, in a to a context where it doesn't belong. But there is some connection because it's, and if you're not familiar, as I'm sure most listeners are not, with the ins and outs of, politics of amputees, Kingsley's identity, you may not grasp this. But one of the things about Kingsley is that it's quite likely that casual observers encountered him with his artificial limbs and were not aware that he actually had a mobility impairment. So that, that's why I'm saying, in, if you wanted to use the queer uh, discourse, you know, which I'm not saying is completely applicable, but you could say that he passed for able-bodied. As a result of passing, did that mean that he simply had less interest and wanted to promote himself purely as a newspaper editor of his publication, The Western Clarion, as a leader, as a popular speaker. You know, it's difficult from the, the record. Kingsley's a man that's mysterious. He leaves no diary. He has minimal correspondence. We, we don't find him speaking about his disability. And so, so that is uh, something that, you know, we, we simply would love to know more. Uh, it is nonetheless the case, his newspaper, which he edited, publishes quite a lot about injured workers because how could they not do so? You know, in British Columbia, no less than California in this era, mining, uh, you know, name, name a sector, railroads, mining, agriculture, Logging. everything yeah. is really dangerous. You know, and so... There are lots of stories, but there's no real evidence of a connection. About your other questions, you know, the, we go back and forth a little bit. I don't want to leave you the impression that he is actually, uh, you know, completely ignorant. And in fact, he takes positions on, uh, I would say race probably more than gender, that for its time is actually relatively progressive. So, you know, there was a lot of anti-Asian sentiment in both British Columbia, and also in California at the time. And in fact, legislation trying to limit, I think in both jurisdictions, limiting franchise rights, limiting the operation, certainly in British Columbia, of operating laundries. There was a, there was a huge amount of anti-Chinese sentiment. And, but you'll find that Kingsley uh, was actually someone who uh, certainly didn't have a modern conception of identity politics, but was willing to defend people that were oppressed so long it was framed in an anti-capitalist framework. So I don't, 
you know, so I would defend him to a certain extent. I think he was someone that had a, a class-dominated view, and that's something that, you know, one could argue made him principal. What is the slogan that we mentioned in the book of the Socialist Party of Canada? It's no compromise, no political trading. So he's, he's not exactly a shrinking violet. He's a, he's a man that, that had a line, and even within the Socialist Party of Canada, and this is also true if you read our book, uh, in the debates in California, there were others that were wanting to go in a more, we could say, a Debsian direction, more moderate socialism, sort of work within the system, what today is encapsulated by, say, Democratic Socialists of America. In, 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 the, in the modern United States, there were always people like that right to the 1890s. And Kingsley was right there debating with them, denouncing them in the most colorful language, which we quote extensively in the book. You know, and uh, if you like, I can, uh, if there's time, I can read a passage from the book if you'd like. You know, and th- there's, uh, there's really uh, different tendencies. And Kingsley was someone who always believed in th- the class focus and the most radical focus. Yeah, continuing with these blind spots um, and trying to like wrestle with them, um, you bring up a couple other things that are worth noting. One would be his use of humor, humor and irony in his speeches. And many of his peers noted that he had a rather slick wit, but this doesn't translate super well for readers who are just reading a century later. Uh, and there's also the question of Kingsley and his party's class position uh, operating on the relative margins, often having to be self-funded, which would, of course, encourage certain perspectives at the expense of others. So uh, if you have a passage you'd like to read that maybe highlights his wit or his style of communication, that would be great. But there's also the question of understanding where he and his comrades were coming from, um, where they existed within their society. So can you continue to kind of unpack the complications you see in his politics? Oh, sure. I mean, uh, you know, I think the point we're trying to make is that oftentimes Kingsley is perceived as orthodox, but what we say is that his biting sarcasm doesn't translate well because it was an oral culture in the early 20th century. So even after he moves to British Columbia, we're talking well before the start of World War I, more than a decade, you know, and he does go on to live in that era. But for much of his activism, it's very early on. Even radio doesn't exist in this era. These are very, very early days. But I think the best way of conveying this, if you would indulge me, I will read this passage, and I think it'll help your listeners understand. So this is from another socialist, and it's the epigraph uh, to our book. It's by a socialist named W.A. Pritchard, and we start our book uh, with this quotation. So I'm just going to read this. E.T. Kingsley was a master on the platform. Simple, direct phrases. Master of repartee. This one instance that comes to mind, out of many, and one will be enough. Whenever an election took place at that time in Vancouver, the Vancouver local of the party organized a debate or meeting between candidates. Almost always the other parties agreed to this. The boys organized the meeting, ushered it, did everything, took a collection, and thus got some funds to carry on their work. This particular year I have in mind, there was a conservative was named Cowan, I think. The liberal was Joe Martin, and there was an independent running besides E.T. Kingsley for the Socialist Party. This independent was a young lawyer with a good shock of curly hair, and as they drew lots as to the order of speech, this fellow drew the first one, and Kingsley, 
was number two. Well, the meeting opened, and this boy took it upon himself to tell the crowd that he would not attempt to deal with questions of history and economics and these deep matters. I leave that, he said, to my bald-headed friend. Well, the old man, and he got up, he had artificial legs, they'd been cut off on the railroad on this side of the line, and he would stand holding onto a chair, and he said, ladies and gentlemen, I've addressed hundreds of meetings on this side of the line and the other side of the line, and I've never found it necessary to refer to the physical characteristics of any of my opponents. But he says, this young squirt has taken it upon himself to make reference to my baldness, which is very obvious. I want to tell him that there are two kinds of baldness, bald on the outside, and he points to his head, then he pointed to the fella and said, and bald on the inside. You can see my kind of baldness every time I take off my hat. His kind of baldness is evident every time he opens his mouth. That was old Kingsley, and I could tell you all kinds of stories about it. And so with that extract, I think it gives you a real flavor. And if you, if you do read Able to Lead, your listeners can see many more quoted passages. He was a very sarcastic, witty fellow. And I think some of this humor was lost in translation and some of the language was lost due to the passage of time. Yeah, moving along, a major part of Kingsley's political life was as the editor of the Western Clarion, a small socialist weekly. He would spend much of his later political life as an editor and writer both there and at some other outlets, which would put him in the middle of some ensuing battles over freedom of speech, which you've already alluded to, but would continue in the Pacific Northwest area. Uh, And this was something that many socialists and left organizations were working to push at the time. Can you explain these early 20th century struggles in King Kingsley's place in them? Sure. So Kingsley is someone that played a big role in the free speech fights in San Francisco, you know, and uh, I think that many of these issues continued on when he came to British Columbia. So there's uh, a coastline, obviously, Vancouver's a coastal city. And I remember reading one passage where they actually would go by boat into English Bay and sell literature from the Bay because the police were persecuting socialist distribution on the land. So that's an example of the creativity. But, uh, you know, they would be involved in the struggles of the day. But throughout, there was always this tension around what to do about trade unions. There were always socialists that wanted, uh, in in the British Columbia context and and before in California, for socialists to be directly involved in unions. And Kingsley was, along with his supporters, it certainly just wasn't him, had this view that that was compromise, that was selling out, becoming uh, part of the state apparatus, and that they should work on this purest model of struggle, building the party, building up socialist literature, no compromise. That was their emphasis. That was their focus. And uh, But it was open to the critique that they were abstaining from day-to-day work in uh, political struggles, you know? 
Yeah, another major transition uh, that you alluded to at the beginning of our conversation happening at the time was in state security, which had formerly been concerned mostly simply with monitoring people outside the country trying to enter. But in the late 19th and 20th century, places such as Canada started to increasingly monitor their own citizens for subversive behavior. Can you explain the changes going on at this time regarding the state's self-perceived role as a political hall? hallway monitor and the effects it would have had on figures such as Kingsley and his comrades? Oh, sure. I'd be happy to. The, uh, you know, shift, I think, came with the rise of the security state and uh, World War One. You know, uh, earlier there was the politics of immigration. And we do talk about this in the book. But essentially, Vancouver Island had very, very few people uh, that were settlers. You know, there was indigenous people, there were settlers living there, but it was it was minimally populated and moreover, it was minimally policed. So at the time, although I don't think the capitalist state ever liked socialists, you know, that this was largely ignored, you know, because there was so it was so remote. And uh, and you see this in other places, you know, as well, but over time you saw the need for uh, a security state, particularly when the Great War, World War I, begins. And it's important for listeners to understand that in most of the world, unlike the United States, uh, in 1914 is the start of World War I. And Canada, unlike the States, goes to war automatically when the London Parliament, Westminster, decides in 1914. So in fact, there was a certain amount of tension between Canada and the United States during the war years uh, because Canada was very much oriented towards uh, England or Britain in these days. And so over time, you know, when we talk about the, uh, the war uh, censors that uh, were monitoring Kingsley, you know, and, uh, you know, we get some of our most uh, colorful quotations from, from those documents, you know, and uh, you actually will see, uh, you know, uh, the uh, colonels at the time, people in charge of intelligence, saying that others working in the socialist left are actually reasonable people. The state can tolerate them. We can offer them jobs, perhaps, and get... But Kinsley, he's uncompromising. He's, and you know... Uh, I don't know if I can do justice to the quote, but it's something like, he's an out-and-out red Bolshevik. It's a, it's, a, it's a literally a quote like that. That's a, that, that in the most denunciate, denunciating terms, saying he's an out-and-out red Bolshevik uh, who would do absolutely anything to bring the state down and, uh, and goes on to say he's one of the most dangerous men in Canada. And so at that point, they actually start looking into the fact uh into inquiring into whether or not uh, Kingsley had been naturalized. And nothing, as far as we can tell, comes to that. And I think that's because Kingsley himself uh, managed to get himself uh, British subject status. And I don't want to bore your listeners with the arcane details of Canadian citizenship law. That's in the book. But essentially, at that time, the, Canada isn't really a sovereign country until after the era, after Kingsley is dead, in terms of foreign policy. So there is no real sense of Canadian citizenship at that era. It's more, are you a British subject 
or not. That would include Canadians, that would include South Africans, you know, that would include, and it would include lots of people, even from colonies, uh, but probably they would have to be white. So Kingsley was white. He uh, was able to get himself naturalized. And so when the uh, repression came, and this is true for the United States, by the way, as well, you know, that you have the Palmer raids at the at the end of World War I, uh, 1919 is an era of mass strikes, both in Canada, United States, in some areas, and throughout the world. You know, uh, but luckily for Kingsley, he is naturalized and is able to live on as a radical. Yeah, moving along and turning to the 1920s, you find Kingsley taking on a sort of pseudo-retirement, less active in political struggle, although still connected, particularly in his editorial and writing duties. This was during a time of intense change throughout the American left, particularly as it tried to digest and process and make sense of the recent Bolshevik revolution in Russia, which had opened up a whole new set of possibilities for revolutionaries to consider. Can you unpack the shifting dynamics of Kingsley and his comrades in his final years? Right. So I think here, again, a lot of times Ben and I are left to speculate. But one of the things that initially struck us is that here's a guy who's a double amputee, uh, who's done a whole hell of a lot of speaking. He he also does national speaking in Canada. Canada is a country that... Uh, has a smaller population, but is just as big geographically. So he's traveling by train at times as far as places like Montreal, which if you look at a map, that's like traveling from San Francisco to New York, basically. You know, maybe not exactly the same, but he spends many, many years doing it. So I think Kingsley is uh, a man who simply fades away because I think that over time, his health as a double amputee starts to fade, you know, and I think he, he's weakened over time. He's a man who's born in 1856. He's already past 60 uh, during the second, uh, excuse me, the First World War. So you come to that era, imagine health technology. You know, I have difficulty as a person with a disability, uh, you know, managing the health system in 2022. Imagine what it's like having problems with your artificial limbs in 1910 you know, while being a political leader and editor. So I think that over time, he fades away. He has a break. It's important for listeners to understand he has a political break with his organization because of an editorial he writes, which is perceived as being uh, too anti-German, too patriotic at the start of World War One. So he, he, he is gradually marginalized within the Socialist Party of Canada. He's not really active during the war years. And so he he's someone who, after Bolshevism breaks out, Bolshevism breaks out, he's not able to find a political home that's really satisfying. His traditional home, his party falls apart at the end of World War One, and his, uh, he's not comfortable really with... Uh, social democracy or with communism, as far as we could tell. He doesn't he doesn't fit into any neat category. So he's he's sort of left politically homeless. It is interesting that as a very old man, a few years before his death, he runs one last time for the House of Commons in 1926. That's his third run for the House of Commons and his fifth run, I want to say, 
for the national legislature. He also has a couple of runs for the BC legislature. He's extremely prolific in running for office, never succeeding, but it's in his system. He still does it, but he gets virtually no press coverage. He sort of, uh, you know, has been at that point, despite the fact that he had such fame in British Columbia, he was featured in advertisements, even to sell products. You'll see advertisements for shoes and other products, uh, you know, that feature uh, Kingsley. I think it's shoes. I'd have to go check. You know, th- there's advertisements in newspapers, but I think his energy level starts to fade and he's quite isolated. He's, you know, he's a man that doesn't remarry. You know, his children are in another country. He's getting older. He's disabled. And I think he sort of just fades away. Yeah, turning to the end of the book, you and Ben reflect on Kingsley's relative absence in historical scholarship on the American left, which speaks to a similar struggle today in terms of visibility for disabled people, something we still need to be conscientious of. As a final question, how should socialists think of disablement? And more specifically, how ought socialists include disablement so that it's not simply one box among many we check off during our speeches, but is both an integral part of how we both critique capitalism and demand a socialist alternative? Right. So, uh, well, there's actually two distinct questions buried there. So let, let me try to unpack that. The first question goes directly to the previous one about his relative absence. And that absence is true both in the United States and Canada. You could say he was a minor figure in the Socialist Labor Party in California. That may be true, but he's very significant in Canada. And I think the reason he's absent is not so much about disability politics per se, but because he doesn't fit in any neat category. He doesn't join the Communist Party of Canada. So communists, for 50 years after that, are not interested in Kingsley. He does, he's around, chooses not to join the Communist Party. He doesn't get involved with the earliest stirrings of established Canadian social democracy. Social Democrats that were leaders, that uh, are very well known in Canada, like J.S. Woodsworth, uh, there are schools named after J.S. Woodsworth in Canada. They knew Kingsley, but they go on to become Debsian, uh Norman Thomas type moderate socialists. They don't want to be associated would somebody like Kingsley mention that they knew such a radical uh, in their youth? That's just embarrassing. So that's the first question. And I think that's sort of separate. But the, the second question is broader. I think that it's the uncompromising activism that you want to take away. There's too many people on the left that, uh, whether it's a disability or not, but especially in disability, it's all about getting the next grant. It's all about, you know, uh, doing what's next, working within the system, but worrying about that appointment. You know, it's, it's always, uh, are, am I gonna, if I'm too radical, I might not be appointed to this board, this kind of thing, right? You get compromised. You know, I'm not saying never work within the system. I teach at a law school. Obviously, you know, the people have to make their judgment calls. But I think one takeaway that's still legitimate and valid from Kingsley's era is the idea that he challenges the state And so for that reason, and maybe this is a nice way to end, Ben and I are working on a collection of Kingsley's writings called Class Warrior, which is going to collect his writings. It's coming out later this year from Athabasca University Press, and it'll allow you to read the articles that he wrote and the speeches that he gave. You know, we uh, spent a lot of time, and I have to give full credit to Ben, uh, he's the lead editor on this, 
uh, and Ben and I were able to collect these, convince Athabasca University Press. And the preface is written by a very famous historian, which I think possibly some of your uh, listeners may have heard of. He's famous uh, internationally as Brian Palmer, who's done yeah. a lot of working class history. He's going to be my next guest. I'm and working on his book. So, Well, there yeah. you go. Well, what a perfect segue for yeah. the show. So you're going to have Brian Palmer next, but he's going to be in Class Warrior. Uh, he was kind enough to do this uh, preface for Class Warrior. And so once your listeners have absorbed Able to Lead from the University of British Columbia Press, I hope they'll check out Athabasca University Press because they are publishing Class Warrior. Yeah, well, that's a great way to end, and we'll all have to look forward to that anthology. Uh, so in the meantime, Ravi Malhotra, thank you so much for being with us. Thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate the opportunity.